I'd like to start uh, this morning with a few announcements. First, uh, I want to thank uh, the parents and the kids, some of you who came on Friday night for the massive egg hunt here. That was uh, truly cool, uh, however, was truly massive in terms of the people, numbers of people who came. And so I just was really proud of Heather and the way that she responded to the hundreds of people who were here and trying to make it all work for everybody. Uh, proud of her and also thankful to many of you who uh, were patient about uh, how many eggs you got and stuff like that. So, wow, that was a lot of people. <laughs> who knew? I <laughs> uh, feel like that, uh, that great episode from WKRP in Cincinnati when they dropped the turkeys from the helicopter into the city on a Thanksgiving promotion. Who knew they couldn't fly? And uh, it's just, you learn, you go on, I guess. So, Hey, uh, uh, Friday night, as Tony mentioned, uh, Try not to underestimate what it is that's being offered to you. You go, what do you got, a movie and communion? We did this a couple of years ago, and it's powerful. To be showing the Bible movie all afternoon, and you can kind of check in for a few minutes of it or in a few hours of it. That's entirely up to you. But there's a lot going on. There was a lot going on when we did this before. There was a real, really uh, powerful sense of the Holy Spirit here as we met him and just watched the you know, the conveyance of the gospel through, a, through the movie. And then at the time of our own choosing, just went over to the communion tables and uh, acknowledged the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on Good Friday. So uh, try not to underestimate that. Uh, that's really a powerful opportunity for you. And, and uh, the thing with the kids that we're going to be doing, I'm actually going to be doing that. I'm looking forward to spending uh, some time with the 6th through 12th graders at whatever time it says that is, and uh, uh, just spending some time with them and having an opportunity to explain communion to them uh, in, their own, in their own language and stuff and have an opportunity to share in it with them. So that's Good Friday. I'm pretty excited about it. But don't forget about tonight. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to be baptizing 15 individuals in uh, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it's always such a privilege of mine to work with people, getting them ready to be baptized and hearing their testimonies. And you'll hear a summary of their testimonies tonight as they'll share it themselves on their way to the water. And uh, we also like to have a, a, a short message, it's not like a full-blown message or anything, but a shorter message um, talking about baptism, but also giving a real clear presentation of the gospel, because there's lots of times when your unbelieving friends or family members will come along to a baptism service to see somebody be baptized, and so we always like to lay that out for them while they're here, and uh, I'm really, this will mean more to some of you than others, but I'm really excited to say that for that brief message tonight, uh, since we actually have a family member being baptized, uh, Pastor Bruce Paquette will be bringing that part of the message, and Bruce uh, is our, some of you are like, I don't know why I'm clapping, but it would seem like a thousand years ago now, but uh, 
uh, our second son, Bruce, was for seven years our children's pastor here. And uh, he's just a remarkable young man. And some of you grown-ups were kids under his ministry. And uh, so uh, since he's coming, his family's coming, since another one of our grandchildren will be baptized, uh, I said, hey, Bruce, how about if you bring that part? And he said, okay. And I thought, all right, then, that'll be cool. So I'm just pretty excited about that. Today's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, it's the day that we celebrate Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday because in many cases, uh, as he rode along, the people laid things in front of him. Some laid their coats in front of him as a way of honoring him. Others cut palm branches off the trees and laid them in his path to honor the coming Jesus. Um, I want to show, the passage I want to show you is in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. If you have, have your Bibles, then this really marks the beginning of the week during which Jesus Christ allowed himself to be crucified on the cross for our sakes. This is what Palm Sunday marks, is the beginning of that week. It's sometimes called Passion Week. Uh, but Easter week, but it's definitely the week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem doing certain things, clearing the temple, these things that we many of us know about from being familiar with the Gospels that Jesus did during that week leading up to Good Friday where he voluntarily then gave his life on the cross for us to be saved. And then on the third day, which is what we get to celebrate next East, next Sunday, is he rose from the dead. And that's a very exciting, very exciting thing for us. This uh, account of what's called the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday is often referred to as the triumphal entry because of the, the mood that surrounded his entry into Jerusalem. This, the account of this is found in all four of the Gospels. Now, for some of you going, what does that mean? The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are called Gospels. And these books are accounts of the life of Jesus. And uh, as you read through them, you'll see that sometimes uh, something about Jesus occurs in one of them, but not in the other three. Sometimes it occurs in a couple of them, but not in the other two. And you go, I wonder why that is. Well, there are a few instances where something that Jesus did actually is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And that, to me, just because of the volume, it makes me want to pay more attention to that. You know what I mean? The fact that all four Gospel writers were really inspired to, to include that, uh, tells me that it has a level of importance that, that uh, we really ought to pay attention to. So I'm going to read this, and as I said, this is one of four places you could find similar accounts that would have only minor differences in details, like whether they used the palm branches or not, or whether they said the word Hosanna or not. And in the passage of I, I have chosen, they have, it includes neither. There you go. Okay. <laughs> As you will see. <laughs> Triumphal entry, uh, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Well, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were t- untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowds said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Lord, we look to to this with a heart of faith. They have to come alive for us, Lord. They have have to be translated over the centuries. I wonder how many billions of times this passage has been read by gatherings of believers across the centuries. I wonder how many times some prayer of of pleading with you for understanding has been uttered, saying, help us to know what it means to have a king, Lord, and help us to know what it means for that king to be your son, Jesus Christ. And so we invite you into this room, Father, as we share some time around your word. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to convey the essential purpose and power and truth of this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a warning, as my comments are, are going to be a little bit more brief this morning, and I only warn you because some of you have it gauged to kind of wake up at certain times. And I don't want you to accidentally oversleep and wake up and realize everyone is gone. So I have just a little warning about that, that they're a little bit shorter today. And it's in part is because of a level of fatigue that I'm experiencing right now, which is hard to describe. And it came, uh, it's a result of Karen and I actually um, confronting some demonic forces yesterday, uh, which is you know, it might blow some of your minds just to hear that, and others of you go, oh, there you go, yep. Uh, but uh, the kingdom of God is a real thing, and the kingdom of darkness is a real thing, and part of our ministry from time to time, and as infrequently as possible, as far as we're concerned, uh, involves confronting demonic forces on behalf of other people, helping them to be set free from them. And uh, while we're you know, one of the fascinating things about that is, is it's the one area of our ministry in which, by God's grace and power, we have been 100% effective. It's pretty cool. I mean, you know, we've prayed for a lot of people to be, be healed, and some of them were and some of them weren't. And we've prayed for a lot of people to be saved, and some of them were and some of them weren't. But there hasn't been a single case in all of our ministry where when we prayed for somebody to be delivered from demonic forces... Uh, and those demonic forces manifested themselves that they haven't been set free. 
by God's power. And so, uh, and of course we give God all the glory for that, but it's exhausting. It's hard to describe how exhausting it is. It, it just sucks you into a place where uh, you're physically and mentally and emotionally tired. And so while I was praying yesterday, Lord, couldn't somebody else bring the message today? Uh, uh, the Lord just kept saying, you'll be all right. <laughs> all right, so here I am. <laughs> Palm Sunday is about recognizing Jesus Christ as King, as King, as King. You know, we recognize Jesus as our Savior, do we not? We depend on Him for our salvation. There's no argument we're sinners. We needed Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, to shed his perfect blood because ours wasn't. We needed him to rescue us from our predicament of bondage to sin and Satan. So he's our Savior. There is no argument there, and I think we have a very clear sense of what that means for us. We know Jesus to be our friend. Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, he said, for a servant doesn't know his master's business. He said, instead, I call you friends. Um, I call you friends. And so there is this amazing friendship dynamic in our relationship with the Lord God of the universe. Is there not? He said, in my, in my present demonstration or manifestation of myself in the Holy Spirit, I will be your counselor. So he is our counselor, and he gives us counsel and comfort, does he not? We know these things about Jesus. Uh, we know him to be a miracle worker. We know him from reading the scriptures, and many of us have been privileged to see him work miracles in front of our faces, just moving from the kingdom realm into the realm of this earth and doing something before our eyes. It's been amazing. So we know him as these things. But Palm Sunday is such a critical part of understanding the nature of Jesus Christ, and it is one that I think is, is the most difficult for us to get as Americans, as 21st century Americans, and that's Jesus Christ as King. That Jesus Christ is King. He is King of the church. He's King of the universe. He is King of all that is. Jesus Christ is is king. And I think that today we, we have two great challenges that we face in embracing Jesus Christ as our king. Because I don't think we have any problem saying it, do we? I mean, as believers, we don't have any problem saying, Jesus Christ is king. Yeah, rock on. He is king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Glory. Yeah? And we can get wrapped up in that, in saying it. But what about embracing him as king? I think we face a couple of big challenges. And the first one is this, is we really have no idea what it means to live as the subjects of a king. We really don't know what that means. We are recipients of an amazing thing called democracy. We are participants in something called democracy. And we cast our votes. And we live in this glorious thing called a representative government. And we cast our votes. And we, we live by 
the will of the majority, at least theoretically, right? (laughs) We live by what is our perception of the will of the majority. And so when our majority candidate wins, we go, whoo-hoo! And when our majority candidate doesn't win, we have bumper stickers that said, well, at least I didn't vote for, and then we fill in the blank, right? And we have these passive-aggressive ways of, you know, continuing the campaign long after it's over. But this is not anything like what it would mean to live under the rule of a king. A king who would have absolute authority. Because in our democracy, while our president, for example, has certain extraordinary executive power, there there are still checks and balances that, again, theoretically, should keep him or her from doing whatever their will is. This is this is what the Constitution was meant to de, meant to deploy. And so we don't know what it means to live under the the rule of a king. We couldn't. And so we make mistakes as we relate to Jesus as king. We we make the mistake of thinking he is somehow our elected president. And we don't mean to do that, but it's it's what we have to work with. And I think the church in general is missing an enormous measure of power because we don't know how to embrace Jesus truly as king of the church. We can sing it. We can say it. We can wish for it. But we don't have a good model for even knowing what it means that Jesus is king of the church. And so what do we commonly see in America? We see churches set up, even local churches, and, and by extension whole denominations, or maybe it's the other way around, we see them set up as mini-democracies, do we not? With lots of voting about this and voting about that and churches splitting because the vote was split. And, and we see this because we don't know what it means to have a king. We don't know how to have Jesus be our king. So this is a bigger day than you might think this Palm Sunday. It's a bigger day. But I think the other challenge that we face in learning to embrace Jesus Christ as our king, king of the church and king individually, is a word that I made up. I don't think you'll find it in Google. But I'm just calling it the fabulization of our faith. The fabulization of our faith. It's that what becomes, what was fact, what is fact, becomes fable to us. And so we relate to Jesus as kind of a fable king who rode into Jerusalem. Not a real king, but a fable king. 
You know, critics of faith, any faith, not necessarily just our faith, but critics of faith in general, say that people of faith try to make fable into fact. Don't they? And so as Christians, we're constantly accused of saying, no, we understand the scriptures to be fact. But we're accused of not having enough source evidence to support that kind of an opinion. And so we're accused of trying to make fable, they said it's all fable, into fact. All right, we deal with that on one level. I think there's something terribly sad about that to begin with, but that's not the point. I think the problem that we're facing in the church is just the reverse is it's making fact into fable. And so that as we approach something like Palm Sunday, we go, oh yeah, that was the sweet time when Jesus rode on the little donkey and everybody waved their branches, you know. And it creates, it, it creates about the same emotional response as a beloved fable does. Is anybody with me? And I think that it, the fabulization of fact, it, it comes because, first of all, because of chronological distance. That happened a long time ago, didn't it? And so the whole account in our minds somewhere, like with Palm Sunday, starts once upon a time. There was a Savior who got on a donkey, right? And then it, gets, it just fits into the pattern of a fable because we're not reading it as though it's fresh news. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that I think has contributed to the danger of it being seen as fable is the repetition of it. Every Palm Sunday we roll. Now I think it's important that the church celebrates certain essential dynamics of the life of Jesus in rhythm. I think that's really important. And I think it's consistent with how God set things up in the Old Testament with the various feasts. So I think there's not a thing wrong with that in essence. And I think that one of the reasons there's power in the church today is because so many churches are gathering around the same thing in America. You know, the church, I mean, the devil's best trick is to divide the church, but Right now, today, churches of all flavors are reading this scripture and tall, bald guys are standing up or sitting down and some of them are wearing robes and some of them are wearing short pants and, and, and sandals, but they're, they're talking about Jesus riding it. And so there's a sense of agreement in the church. Today. There's power in the church today, 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 because of that. And so I, I love to celebrate Palm Sunday and Easter, Christmas. Now, I can't push it to, like, Ascension Sunday and stuff like that. I, I start to lose interest, all right, at certain points. But the big ones, the, the, the central salvation essential issues, I want to celebrate with the rest of the church. But the sheer repetition of that just makes it fodder for fabulization, doesn't it? Oh, here's when he's going to read that story about Jesus. Got on a little donkey and came into the Jerusalem and everybody was... But I think the third thing 
that puts us at risk of fabulization is the religious pageantry that often accompanies these kinds of things. And that's why, you, you see, we don't, we're not very tricky around here, are we? Have you noticed this? We're pretty simple, pretty basic. We got like three plays in the playbook, and we run the same three plays every week, you know? Worship God, get under the word, and then see what he wants to do, right? That's pretty much our deal. And the reason that we don't have somebody dressed up in a bathrobe riding down on a donkey today is because, is because of the risk that religious pageantry contributes to that becoming more of a fable. And if you look historically at churches, bear with me now, I'm not mad at anybody in particular, I'm pretty much mad at everybody today. <laughs> well, when you get in the battle zone, it's just like you're just mad at everybody. So. But if you look historically at churches, that the churches that have been in existence for the longest periods of time have the most pageantry have the most religious pageantry. Why? Because religion is the thing that men make up while they get tired of waiting for God to show. And so things will always be simple here. As long as I'm sitting here, things will always be simple. And we might dabble a little here, have a little fun with this or that, if it's powerful and meaningful. But we will not fall into the pattern of religious pageantry because it runs the risk of fabulizing something that's fact. Is this making sense? All right. So then how then do we connect with Jesus as king? Well, let's just quickly observe how they did. How these people then, who knew what a king was, and it wasn't fable, it was actually happening. There was no religious pageantry. This was, just, this was unfolding before their eyes. They did three things. Ask me what the first one is. They worshipped him. Verse 35. It says they brought it to Jesus. This foal of a donkey. They threw cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as Jesus went along, as he went along, they spread, people spread their cloaks. By the way, if I sound drunk today, I'm not, okay? I really am not under the influence. This is what happens when you get in that, that battle place, okay? It's just what it is. But I, I, you guys must be, I think you might have been stoned. I don't, I, I'm not. When he came, where, where was I even? They... You're all shouting different numbers. <laughs> they, brought, they brought it to Jesus. They threw cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. This is what you do with a king. You worship him. We wouldn't know that because we don't worship our presidents, and we shouldn't. We don't worship our senators. We don't worship our congressmen. We don't worship our mayors. We don't worship our police chiefs. We don't worship people. Okay? They worshiped a king. They worshiped a king because in the day and the age, 
In most of these cultures, in most of these developing cultures, the king was a representative of God. Whether it was Pharaoh or whomever, the king was understood to be a representative of God. And so the worship of the king was a normal thing. And so they worshipped Jesus because he was a king. They worshipped him in loud voices. What else did they do? Well, they depended on his greatness. If you look at the rest of verse 37, it says, um, came near the place. They began, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. What were they so excited about? That the king can do great things. So they were excited because a king has absolute power. A king of the day had absolute power. Live, die. Die, live. Be rich, be poor. Come, go. Yes, no. This is absolute power. And so they depended on him because he had, he had demonstrated his absolute power in John just a few chapters earlier. For example, by raising Lazarus from the stinking dead. And he said, I'm king. Watch this. Lazarus, come forth. And so they had come to depend on him in his miracles. And then the third thing is they obeyed his every command. You obey a king. And it started in verse 29 as he approached Bethpage and Bethany and at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, untie the colt. He says, when you get there, somebody's going to say, why are you taking that colt? You tell them the Lord needs them. And what what it what happened? That's exactly what happened. And what did they do? They did exactly as they were told to do. They didn't come up with some other reason they needed the horse. They said, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. They don't even know who he's talking about, but the Lord needs it. We're taking, we're stealing your horse because the Lord needs it. <laughs> this is what they were told to do. They didn't rationalize it going, we better come up with something better than that. Anybody got any money? Maybe we could rent this horse. Come on. How many of you go down that road with the Lord? You get a word from the Lord. It's clear. And you begin to qualify it. You begin to polish it up. Yeah? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You begin to compromise it. And then it doesn't have its power. They did what he said. They said, all right. <laughs> and off they go. And they were obedient. Do you want to embrace Jesus Christ as king today, or you just want to have a Palm Sunday pageant? Do you want to embrace Jesus Christ as king? Then worship him. I don't feel like worshiping. Too stinking bad. He's king. You know, when he's king, it doesn't matter what you're feeling like. You let it rip. You let it go. Because he's king. You worship him. I don't know how to worship him. Of course you do. Open your mouth and sing something. I don't know these songs. Well, it's a good thing that the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord, doesn't it? It doesn't matter. But standing there with your hands in your pocket, wondering how much longer this is going to be, is not worshiping God. And he's not king. He's not king. Second, you depend on him for his greatness. Are you depending on God? You see, what we've got now in the church right now 
is we've got, we can do church. We can do church. We got the band. We got the semi-interesting tall, bald guy. We got the building. We got the place for the kids. We got it, right? We got, we can do church. That terrifies me that we can do church. Because we don't have to depend on God. We don't have to depend on God. And when I was out on the wall early this morning going, Lord, I have nothing. And he said, you'll be all right. I went home last night, and he used Karen to say that. I said to Karen, I said, I'm going to say something that's probably really going to tick you off. She said, what? I said, I have absolutely nothing to say tomorrow. You know what she said? You'll be all right. (laughs) Are you depending on God? You see, when we don't ask God for great things, we're demonstrating we don't believe he's a great God. Did you hear that? When we do not ask God for great things... We do not dem- we demonstrate that we don't believe he's a great God. Is he king? What would you ask of the king of the universe if you had an audience with him? <laughs> and they obeyed his every command. Obey his every command. Obey his every command. You know, there's some stuff I want to do so bad in my ministry right now, but he won't let me. So it's not every idea that comes into your head is what you do. You sort it out and you set it before the Lord and say, Father, I want to obey your every command. Have a great week.